Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to episode 16, Militarization of Space Face the Reality. To understand this issue we have today with us Harini Madhusudan. Hi Harini, welcome to the podcast. Hello sir, thank you so much for having me here today. Likewise, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, as we'll be taking a deep dive into this topic, so prior to that can you please provide a brief overview of your career, the organization you associated with, the ongoing research of yours and in general your journey in the space industry. Sure, sir. Uh, my name is Harini Madhusudan. I'm a PhD scholar at the National Institute of Advanced Studies, uh, Bangalore. Uh, my background is in international relations, political science, international relations, world history. And uh, I developed an interest for space uh, politics, space studies uh, through my international relations journey. In my master's, I looked at uh, militarization, weaponization in outer space and uh, my interest grew further and I took up my PhD in militarization of outer space. So m- most of my focus is on uh, militarization of outer space, but I also look at the transition that the outer space domain is seeing uh, these days. So th- you see the space race 2.0 or uh, how we see uh, space <laughs> evolving uh, as the technology gets more affordable, the tourism, uh, Mars race and all of it. And along with that, um, I have a small interest in international political economy, international law, and uh, for area studies, I look at Russia. So this is broadly what I work on. Interesting. I guess there there is a need for individuals like you in the space industry because I have always met uh, engineers who have turned into a businessman or you know turned full into the commercial space sector, but. I have hardly seen any individual coming from the political science background and trying to, you know, uh, make a huge difference in the space industry. Of course, there are uh, quite a lot of individuals who are, uh, whose existing expertise are in the engineering sector, but then they later on in the later part of their career, they shifted to IR and diplomacy. But uh, I believe there is more need of such individuals uh, in the industry. So yeah, uh, we wish you good luck with your research. So before we take a deep dive into this topic, can you tell us what is the meaning of militarization of space? The reason I'm asking this question is because we have quite a lot of audience from the commercial space sector. And I think the familiarization of term is there in the space industry, but not to the level at which the international relations uh, people know it in a much more depth. So can you please tell us the meaning of this term? Uh, sure, sir. So I think we can look at militarization of, of, of outer space under three broad uh, spectrums. 
one is the role of uh, space capabilities in the in a country's defense uh, applications so you will have satellites giving support uh, to the ground stations the ground systems of a military uh, military strategy so that would be the first part second part would be addressing security challenges in space itself so that will be you have dedicated military satellites that are doing your surveillance that are doing your intelligence gathering and uh, that are also uh, probably um, equipped with this is again it's a future idea that a satellite could be equipped with some form of a technology that is uh, counter um, counterbalancing or like a counter uh, weapon to some other something that might attack your satellite right so that is your second uh, broad theme the third theme it would be the role of defense forces in outer space itself so when we see uh, an anti satellite or a ground missile that could attack uh, another satellite or attack another region so this is your defense forces that is traveling through outer space uh, traveling through uh beyond the 100 meter line and their role what they play in outer space and then there is this future plan of having a military base on the moon or having um, capabilities or military observation uh, capabilities through the lunar orbits and things like that so all of these can be broadly looked at as a militarization concept where you're investing on space technology or space capabilities with the idea of using it specifically for security and defense purposes all right so i think it's pretty much safe to say that the terrestrial conflicts uh, are finally or have started affecting the cooperation in space because it's only the adversary movements that might possibly create a militarization of space and so uh, in general like what are the key factors contributing to the militarization of space from your perspective so i think one of the primary uh, contribution to militarization of outer space so we know that during the cold war you had us and russia having very active military engagement in outer space so outer space essentially became their they called it the final frontier of uh, defense uh, capabilities right so it was um, land wa- water air and then space became your final frontier and the competition was intense to have the best technology to have the best innovations that could reach farther away from our atmosphere so now what has happened is the number of players in outer space have increased you have countries uh, from uae to north korea to uh anybody uh in anybody who has sufficient scientific knowledge and sufficient uh, investment capabilities they can reach uh, outer space so you have innovation and the loss of um heavy costs so it's cheaper now to go to space than it was 20 years ago so i think these are the two factors and the third factor is the increasing geopolitical conflict you have um i would want to observe my neighbors or observe somebody who might be potentially a threat uh, from outer space at much cheaper than using human intelligence so these things have become uh, guiding factors for the increased militarization of outer space so it is essentially the cost cutting and uh, innovation that has that has driven this need to have a very strong military presence in outer space 
and i would say I this is a very uh, i yeah. i would say this is a very interesting point and i believe uh, your point very much aligns with our previous episode guest who came uh, on our podcast uh and she was telling us the same thing somewhere the innovation and the commercialization is actually responsible to increase the threats in in the space domain because uh we we know that the more accessible you keep the technology the more adversarial activities will start increasing i mean the day won't be far that we will be seeing an adversary or an extremist group operating a satellite company uh yeah. under some or the other cover possibly and i i think there should be some kind of regulation that's that's one of the reason i feel uh especially uh, from uh, as i come from india and i i believe uh, the indian indian space sector has a fairly much more government control uh, over most of the space assets as compared to the you know the commercialization that is happening in europe or uh, united states and yeah. one good thing about that is the national security is not at risk uh, at least to some extent uh, but yeah we have seen and there have been several incidents uh, in uh, incidents over here that uh, the national security has been put into risk uh, in a lot of incidents there have been cases of espionage as well in europe uh, in the european space industry to put it in a broad perspective so yeah just to i think go a little more deeper into the topic and i think we started with this questions previously also so considering the regional conflict and the geopolitical dynamics do you think space technology is becoming more of a strategic tool to navigate a state's international position as opposed to being just a peaceful resource um the shortest answer would be yes and i think uh, so i'll go back to the point that you said that very soon we we might see the reality that uh, some non state actor would end up non state as an a uh, very very uh, disruptive actor could have its own satellite i would go far as to say that tomorrow you might see an individual who is probably very very influential he could have his own satellite and operate his systems because it's that cheap to own a satellite and uh, as coming back to the question that you said using regional conflict and political dynamics uh, it is it is becoming more of a strategic tool and it's becoming much more uh, convenient to apply the strategic tool and get what you want because uh, on one side we see that the innovation and the costs are cheaper on the other side you see the regulation is very sparse and today if one of my satellites is observing a very very um <clears throat> um how do i say this a very a, a very strong uh, location in my country that doesn't need to be surveilled or uh, you there is no way you know and i remember reading this uh, article where they said uh, there are satellites that were capable of observing a bunker that is right in the middle of iran's um iran city so the nuclear we know the nuclear um, capabilities of iran was under the city right so satellites were able to get data of that so when you say regular when we see that these regional and geopolitical conflicts this is how it gets aggravated so tomorrow when iran finds out that oh my god they were looking at 
my location, my geostrategic location, then I will also have to give an equal and opposite response to it. So I think in this way, there is a, an increase in mutual suspicion. There's also in, increase in like um, mistrust among countries. So you don't know uh, whom to trust, whom not to trust, why they're doing it and all of it. And there's no way to know how much of our country they're observing or how much of my, my strategic locations are being uh, under their radar. So I think these are the things that really make it a very, very dicey situation uh, to be in right now. Absolutely. I, I don't know. Is, is this something you've observed as well? I mean, in Europe, how is the case? Because you have ESA on one side uh, that is collectively yes. looking at outer space, but you also have individual space powers working in their own silos. So how, how does it work there? Yeah, I believe... Uh... The situation, I would say, uh, it's it's kind of similar, uh, where you know you cannot actually guarantee what a state or what an entity would do when they have a full scale power, or at least some some to some extent if they have some power in in the space domain. Like yeah. for example, we in the recent times we i mean like i'm shifting little bit away from the topic that we're discussing uh, yeah. but yeah collective information of uh, narratives yeah. is right now lacking a lot in the western countries i would say because uh, not i would say not to that extent in france because in france we still receive and can access uh, the news from Iran, Russia, the news sources are still published very well over here. But if you go to other countries uh, in the West, there's a problem. And this problem is actually, I would say, is, is in some way it is going to affect the research scholars, like, uh, for example, research scholars like you, who are right now, you know, doing a deep research in some specific topics. The problem yeah. happening over here is such researchers are getting only one narrative, right? Yeah. When they search anything about Russia, it's only CNN or CNBC popping up. There is no RT world. There is no other, you know, possibly Iranian channel, press TVR, IR. So those things are not actually, you know, being consumed by the researchers. They just have one perspective. And I believe that's, that's a very dangerous situation for an analyst because as an analyst researcher, you need to consider each and every narrative and then come to one conclusion. Uh, but I think this is going to affect the future leadership positions. And I believe this might even later on affect the decision-making in the military space domain, which ultimately will affect possibly the way adversary activities affect and I think that's that all that is also the point where we can we would be able to see how some or at least most of the developed countries in the West might start losing power because the moment you have a leadership where that leader has consumed only one narrative, I believe the decision making making power somewhere decreases to the level where you know it is not able to take a collective decision for the good of everyone because that individual has only seen one perspective all his life. And I, I think that is happening uh, right now at the moment, but we'll see its after effects after a few years. Uh, yeah. We won't see it right, uh, right now directly over here. 
it is an interesting thing i mean you mentioned uh, and connected with this thing because recently we had a guest from uh, romania and she specialization is intelligence and uh, security studies so we had a topic dedicated on this thing is only which was mm-hmm. like espionage and narrative warfare like yeah. why it is necessary to have the narrative and why it is also the responsibility of the common citizens to consume the narratives from both the sides and then come to a conclusion and i think in the space industry this is somewhere uh, a kind of a blockade because uh, the commercial space companies are highly bonded with the government agencies i mean their business at some point cannot run without the government's help and yeah. that's where the blockade is coming that they are unable to take their own stand they are unable to align with the narratives for example a lot of people possibly wanted to align with china or russia on some projects maybe for the purpose of commercial aspects maybe for the purpose of innovation aspects as well uh, but unfortunately they couldn't because they they are aligned or having contracts with some governments who are not aligning with the narratives of uh, the east or possibly russia yeah. yeah and i think that that's where the problem is uh, but yeah i think we can definitely have a separate episode for sure on the narratives in the space industry because i think this is a very important topic and i'm glad mm-hmm. that you brought it up in uh, bits and pieces in, in your previous answer yes sir. So, so i think also to... uh, can i just i mean i wanted to add two more points when it yes, comes to yes. adversary in um, in space i mean adversary space capabilities i think it's very different from how we look at adversaries uh, on earth because on earth you know you there is some way of knowing how much of their capabilities are around there is some way to know how much they are capable of um, influencing any any sort of a damage on us but in space there's absolutely no way to know what is the extent of their um investments what is the extent of their capabilities because it's not required to dis- disclose how much they're investing in outer space and i think that's one thing that would be again like i said it's it's legally very very sparsely addressed but innovation wise it's grown beyond uh, a lot of things so i think that's one thing that would be very interesting to look at um that's yes. what what I wanted to add yes definitely definitely i think th- there are a lot of perspectives and dynamics that can be uh, possibly considered over here and as i said like definitely we i i would be really happy you know to have one more episode with you down the line especially dedicated to this topic of you know narratives in the space industry and that narrative can be from any side it's not only yes. commercial or defense uh, for sure So yeah just just to continue with this uh, follow up question on this uh, because uh, as i mentioned about narratives and i think uh, this is in some way possibly uh, very much important to shape the global supply chain or the business because the yeah. way you set set your narrative is uh, decides the kind of business growth you will have as well so from your perspective what are your thoughts on the resilient supply chain initiative by india australia and japan and will it affect the space supply chain in asia and pacific region so firstly i would say because we you know we have a audience from the space industry uh, 
who are sometimes not familiar with several international security concept uh, yeah. so please start with an answer which will explain uh, mm-hmm. what is resilient supply chain initiative firstly and then you can take a deep dive actually so the resilient supply chain initiative is they want to keep a cycle that keeps a uh, it keeps a balanced and sustainable growth throughout the indo-pacific region so basically they want to look at they want to look at sharing of best practices between companies they want to promote investments they also want to match buyers and sellers uh, through common events for supply chain like they want to diversify the supply chains so basically you will have india japan and australia uh, in many ways uh, sourcing their technologies sourcing their strategies to ensure that there is a continuous continuity in the supply uh, between the three countries and this could be in terms of um, information this could be in terms of uh, goods and services and all of it so that's necessarily what resilient supply chain initiative is and i think it's a very great initiative i think it has it holds a lot of potential for the region and it's also sort of an extension of the quad uh, initiative that that is existing in the indo-pacific region uh, coming to the space domain i think there are a lot of very promising uh, investors and uh, startups and companies on space in all three countries you have japan uh, which has a very very strong foundation uh, which has laid a very strong foundation on their space industry you have australia which is emerging into i mean it has laid its foundations as well but it's also emerging into the commercial space domain now india is also on the same plane our commercial space domain is just emerging out of its um, it's foundation i mean the foundations are strengthening now so you have two emerging uh, space industries and then you have japan on one side which has its experience in the space uh, commercial domain so i think in this sense there's a lot to learn from each other there's a lot to offer each other and because geographically there is a lot lot, lot of um, space that the three countries cover there's a lot of data sharing that could be done i think data sharing and situational awareness are something that all countries are striving to strengthen and uh, recently i was in an event where we were talking about uh, space situational awareness and also about covering a large ge- geographical region on earth when it comes to earth observation and when it comes to uh, sar data collection and all of it so i think in that way uh these three countries can do a lot and i think there's a huge uh, loop loophole in when it comes to studying the oceans using satellites and i think australia japan and india are well situated and you know the geographically we'll be able to cover a very vast region of the oceans uh if initiatives are, ta- are taken on that front and i feel like the sub- uh, resilient supply chain initiative could be strengthened in in the space domain if uh, investments and companies are willing to take that step forward and look at these uh, these things in in taking this a little further we can have uh, companies working with each other from australia japan and india in uh, tech innovation as well and i think tech innovation um, would be something that all three countries are interested in because uh, you know that the industry is growing at such a fast pace that today's technology would be uh, 
would not be relevant in the five five next five or ten years to come. So I think in that in that sense, there's a lot of R and D R and D potential that these three countries can work towards. I feel like these are some things that could be done by India, Australia, and Japan. Yes, also like correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I believe uh, the RSCI initiative is uh, possibly. also like one of the key motives of this and the reason quad is also possibly mm. supporting it uh, yes is because the initiatives designed to actually counter the chinese movements in the indo pacific absolutely uh, yeah so can you little bit extend about that as well uh, i think uh, india australia and japan are uh, very uh, strong regional powers when it comes to the indo pacific area uh, you have india on one side australia and japan on the other sides right so china poses an equal threat to all three countries equal threat in the oceans and equal threat again geographically as well economically as well so i think this economic threat and uh, regional threat is is what translated into quad uh it's further translating into uh the regional economic agreements that are coming forth and i think rsci is an extension of that um it would really actually uh, counter the chinese influence in the region if these three countries manage to work together they will be able to reduce their dependence on the chinese economy in many ways and also strengthen like there's a counterbalance that is happening if uh, there's china on one side there's australia india and japan on the other side and if these three countries strengthen uh, their economic capabilities their economic coordination and cooperation then you'll have a very strong counterbalance for the chinese economy in the region and the chinese presence in the indian ocean indian indo pacific ocean so just uh, i would say little bit extending on the same part uh, yes. but from uh, possibly an adversary point of view So, yes. do you believe now governments will need to keep a close eye on regulation policy reforms to block the adversary movements or you know the terror or extremist group from acquiring critical technologies like the space? Um, I feel like adversary groups or like uh, the groups that are a threat uh, to our country. are not yet exploring the capabilities or the uh, potential of satellite um, having satellite technology with them but it is a possibility in the future for sure <clears throat> and i feel like it is very easy to equip them now it's so we know what happened with um, china and pakistan right sometime yes. a few years ago china offered one of their existing satellites to pakistan and this is again an observation satellite so i feel like it's very easy to get a hold of the satellite it's so in that sense um in many ways you there is a possibility but i don't see it happening anytime soon because it's still an expensive technology to maintain despite getting a hold of it maintaining them would be a little bit uh, challenging because you still need the ground station capabilities you need access to um data collecting data and all of it so i think that will take a few years but 
the potential does exist and it's a real threat. I think countries are already looking at how to address these problems. I know for a fact that India is looking at it. So I think it, it is seen as a legit threat. Yes, I, I think the reason I asked you this question is because uh, as far as I know, I, I had actually read from one of the experts uh, that uh, LTT actually hacked one of the satellites of Intelsat and where they, they were actually using it for their own advantage. Uh, I'm not sure about the details of the case or the technical aspects of the case, uh, but there have been incidents now. I mean, this is one of those incidents and uh, where we have actually seen that uh, like a literal uh, extremist group or, a, you know, an organization which was like tagged under the terrorist groups was utilizing this technology. So, I mean, this was back in before, I mean, you know, even 2010 and 2005. So if it was possible in those days, I'm pretty sure like it, it will be definitely, uh, you know, kind of a very high possibility uh, in this it day is, and age yeah. where, yeah. Uh, and it's also, like I mean, Yes, sir, definitely. So uh, there, there is no way to know also. For example, if a state um, is encouraging these players, for example, any state, I'm not going to name uh, any country, but if a country is um, harboring any form of extremist groups or there are people who are in power who are also who also have access to extremist groups for example and this is again a hypothetical example i i'm just giving an example to explain what i'm trying to say it's so easy to get hold of information uh, that are from outer space for example now today if in in the past ltt had to hack a satellite today it's much more easier to hack satellites it's much more easier to get data from a satellite. And also, <clears throat> for example, today, I don't even need to have uh, a satellite of my own. Everything's available in open source. So if I am willing to pay $10, if I'm willing to pay $15, you have open source um, data providers who will give, give you data, collected data, sometimes processed data for that price. So I feel like it's much more easier to get information, satellite-based information, satellite access to satellites hacked by hacking or by uh, taking over, for example. And taking over and hacking are not like openly um, disclosed. So in case there's been a hacking of a satellite, they, it, we don't know much information about how it is, but we know that it has happened in the past. So things like that, it's much more easier now. It's very um, accessible to extremist groups. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you about this uh, because I believe as we go ahead and deep into the future, it will be even impossible or I would say, you know, close to impossible to track this kind of activities. Uh, the way we see in the, in the espionage world, for example, there have been cases where uh, a scientist from some country was working for an agency, for a space agency, for almost 20 years. And he was keeping on passing the information to the adversaries. And, you know, it took them, it took the country 20 years to uh, actually track down that guy. And yeah. the, till then, the infiltration was done. And yes, sir. it is not 
repairable at that moment i would say and i think this kind of activities will go on but that that's one of the reason i think the governments and the agencies uh, or i would say the space industry firstly itself uh when they say you know like the commercialization they become happy they need to actually consider this pillars of the security as well because you don't know the kind of person that is coming in the industry you don't know even though his background might sound so well you don't know at the end of the day what the individual's motives are and i think that is where the insider risk management uh uh aspects also come into the play which the space industry is not taking seriously like i have seen all over in the industry but people don't know what is inside a risk management actually and that's very sad uh, yeah. where you know such a critical technology is being handled and people don't know what is the meaning of inside a risk management anyways like uh, just a you know i would say kind of a joint question in this only So do you think this is words like international and space for humanity are misleading at times given the fact that humanity is already divided even before exploring the uncharted territories in outer space uh, because we have already seen uh, the two groups that is Artemis and International Lunar Research Station of China and Russia so we are already divided but still you know the people in the commercial space are being so happy about you know using the word international so what are your thought about this uh i think this is um, it's like a natural progression in any domain for example when people were exploring space for the first time it was okay human humans are going to space it was it was about us humans or russian humans going to space but again it was a collective thing and now what has happened is because there are so many countries and then everybody is operating based on their own national interests based on their own national agendas uh there is bound to be a divide and i feel like uh space for the longest time i think at least for the last 50 years has has tried very hard to keep the common agenda like a common resource for humankind as a global commons alive for for about 50 years like i said but now what has happened is because everybody is operating based on their national interests the earth based or terrestrial based politics are already reflected in space and i think that is where your artemis and the irls has come from if interestingly there is still that interest there is still that urge to cooperate on both sides because what artemis of artemis accords offer and what irls offers are not the same they are uh, in many ways complementing uh, each other uh, so what happens is there are some countries who are still interested in working on both blocks but you still see that polarization developing and i feel like this is something we could like we could probably call it as astropolarity where you have there is one block very strongly uh, aligning with uh sticking to the foundational rules given by the outer space treaty and there is another block that is trying to uh challenge the foundational principles of outer space treaty and like try to create their own rules try to create their own regulations expand the uh, capabilities of the outer space treaty and interestingly not just on the moon you see this happening with the international space station as well uh international space station is about to retire it's in its final years 
but there is no uh, plan to start another space station that would be internationally open to all researchers and all forms of um, interesting scientific um, study. What is happening in, otherwise is China, Russia, they're all planning their own space stations. China already has placed it in space. Russia has been talking about it. I think sometime last year they were talking about having their own space station. I feel like you will see that also as an emerging trend where countries will begin to operate based on their own national interests, try to have their own uh, capabilities in space because it's much cheaper now. It's well studied, it's tried and tested, so they would want to do it themselves. I feel like that is something that's going to happen. And uh, in many ways, this polarity, the the groupings that are emerging are very, very in align with the political differences or the political uh, leanings that countries have on Earth that will, that are operating in space. And I feel like this is a very, very interesting uh, trend to follow. And it would uh, it would get much more challenging to work together in space in the coming years if this continues. Definitely, I believe uh, what you said is a very important point uh, about the International Space Station because uh, I think that was a benchmark example for the humanity where two states with no, uh, you know, aligned interest uh, on several things are still cooperating uh, on a scientific level for the greater good of the humanity, I would say. But unfortunately, after the Ukraine-Russia war, uh, that that cooperation is no more in place, and it it has highly impacted the scientific community. As far as I have seen, at least in Europe, I am not sure about uh, the other parts of the world, but uh, I have seen uh, it getting you know impacted on a scientific level. The scientific community is not uh, so happy that you know these things have happened. But so, what is your take on this situation? that uh, you know it has overall impacted the scientific community in the space industry um so the role of uh, space technology in warfare has actually evolved over time i think uh, it's very interesting it's a very interesting trend to observe because the first time it was used it was used for navigational purposes i feel like uh, so then the capabilities as the capabilities increased they were applied much more strongly in warfare so you have your Gulf War, where it was first applied, and then you have the present Ukraine war. And if we compare how uh, it has been applied now, it's it's changed so remarkably. And in such short period of time, uh, then it makes you wonder how far will this go? And uh, in the case of Russia and Ukraine uh, specifically, we know that as soon as uh, communications were cut off in uh, Russia, so in Ukraine by Russia, the first thing was done is to provide Starlink communication capabilities. And I think after that, what happened was you have uh, open source commercial players. Again, Starlink is a commercial player. You have open source commercial players who are providing uh, location data of where the troops are, how are their movements, uh, all of those data that was being given to Ukraine or Ukraine was able to acquire them using commercial uh, capabilities. And then additionally, you have um, satellite data that is being given to them to strategize as well. And I feel like this is something, again, very, very uh, 
because of the open source nature of data it has been used to um, it has been applied in the case of ukraine war what happened further after one year of the war is when starlink comes forward and says we did not know uh, that the satellite communication that was given to them to ukraine was applied in uh, the movement of drones like the in uh, was applied in drones so what starlink said that we did not know they would use it to weaponize their uh, military so in necessarily the capabilities of starlink itself nobody knew it could be applied so strongly in a military uh, active warfare zone and then it has been further applied into using them for coordinating their weapon systems and all of that i feel like this is a very very good case study to apply and understand how deep can satellite data or satellite uh, capabilities be applied in an active warfare zone and this is uh, necessarily a country that does not have a very strong presence in outer space so when you look at a case of say india and china or when you look at a case of say us and russia now and then you compare the capabilities of these countries in space then you will know that it would it can get get 10 times much worse and i feel like this this level of situational awareness or this level of capability strategic awareness is something that countries uh, should be uh, addressing should be planning ahead and seeing how they will when you don't know how the capabilities are because russia necessarily did not know ukraine will get so much of satellite support that their systems or their strategy would have to be reoriented to address these emerging responses right so if something like that happens how do you strategize how do you plan and this is something that would be a very good case study to look at excellent i think i, I was actually not aware about the weaponization of uh the starlink in some way uh, but i i believe they were already testing the starlink like starlink actually had contracts in place with the us government to test uh, their uh, system in the arctic region both starlink and oneweb uh, but yeah i think their primary market was commercial enterprise anyways uh, but yeah they didn't go on a full scale military uh, customers at that time but i think uh generally i believe the commercial companies for them the war field no matter whatever the you know the illusion that they put up we have observed this in afghanistan as well for the commercial entities the corporates the technology used in war is always a kind of an experimentation or a demonstration they start building up on those you know foundations later on and i think that is also one of the role like i would like to explore later uh, possibly in our next follow up episodes that how the space technology is used in war and you know what are the motives of the corporates what are the motives of the commercialization and mm-hmm. can this be stopped because from the perspective of defense if i see it uh, the defense industry has built up on the weapons which were actually used in war like war was a kind of an experimental laboratory for a lot of nations to test their weapons and afghanistan syria have been like a few of these examples where we have seen uh, the nations both from both the sides it might be an adversary from the allied nations as well everyone is you know trying to test their own thing and 
that becomes a foundation for you know an r&d in the defense industry uh, it will be interesting to definitely explore uh, from the space technology perspective as well uh, by the way if you'd like to add something to this uh, please feel free to add yes sir so just one more point uh, when it comes to application of say starlink who is registered in another country and his technologies applied in another country's war then legally it becomes a huge challenge whom do you hold liable for the damages or whom do you hold responsible for this kind of capability because now russia will say oh this is an unfair situation i will say russia might say okay us is directly engaged in the war because one of their commercial companies are working in the war or two or three of their companies because we know there were many commercial satellite uh, guys actively supporting ukraine's efforts so legally this becomes a very big challenge and i think that also could be explored when we are talking the next time on active warfare on how you hold somebody accountable or who's uh, who is liable to all these things uh, the liability convention as well when there's commercial uh, players how do you place this and i think it's a very interesting question that we can address definitely i would say uh, we we should actually do some follow up episodes on this because i believe there are several questions which have popped up during the discussion and uh, we can take this up uh, as you know uh, possibly a benchmark to create follow up episodes for sure actually uh, we'll, we'll see how we can organize this uh, in the coming months uh, but i think i guess now we have reached the end of the episode uh, yeah. so harini from your perspective as a researcher who is actively involved in the research of militarization of space so what message would you like to give to young researchers like you as well as the industry experts regarding the militarization of space both from awareness point of view and both from you know getting educated and consuming the narratives different narratives as i said during the conversation so yeah please feel free to tell your thoughts on this i think the biggest uh, advantage or biggest help would be to engage with people more and more and when there are workshops when there are events that are happening there are uh, networking events that are happening it would be very useful to talk to more people engage with more industry players engage with more academicians and see see and find out what we can learn from them what they can learn from us uh, because when we look at the industry there's a lot we don't know about what they're investing on or what their ambitions are and a lot of times they don't know about how what would be best practice for them and for young researchers who want to sub study the subject or who also just want to take up uh, subjects like these i think it would be very very good to take up unique subjects like this and try and explore as much as possible uh, i'm i'm sure there'll always be people like us who will be there to support uh, their initiatives we're always available for a conversation and i feel like topics like these would be would leave a very uh, huge uh, mark on the subject itself and this will probably be a, a starting point to study the subject further and i feel like these these are something that if students are willing to take it up as a challenge uh, there will be a lot of dialogue that can be generated based on that and i feel like that would be very good thank you very much arani uh, really thankful for you know such an engaging discussion because i never had a guest on the podcast who discussed this topic so openly 
I had one of the previous guests, but our, the thing is like our topic was not focused on militarization as such. It was on national security. Uh, but yeah, she also spoke uh, a lot of things which you have the similar perspective as well on that. Uh, so definitely, I think we need to engage in conversation about such topics. And I believe in future, we'll definitely create some follow-up episodes on this. So yeah, thank you very much again. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you for having me. I feel like you're doing a very good job with the podcast. I've seen some of the topics that you've covered before and I've heard one or two of your podcasts. And I this is a very good uh, platform to engage with people, also to create a dialogue on the subject. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much, Arni. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.